0: Hi, and welcome back to Wonder Woman, a podcast that tells the stories of inspirational women in history you may never have heard of. I'm Dominique Roberts. And I'm Megan Armconnect. So, this episode, we're going to be talking about a Native American woman named Suzette LaFleche. And I think this is such an important episode and an important story for us to talk about because Native American history is far too rarely discussed. I mean, I would go as far as to say I received a really good public education in the U.S., and for our British listeners, that means a state school, a publicly funded school, and I have to say that I can tell you more about the War of the Roses and the German Peasant Revolt and all this European history than I can tell you about the history of the native people of my own country. Apart from that Gun, Germs, and Steel movie, I don't know if you had to watch that in middle school. I Um, didn't. That might be a
1: good thing, a bad thing,
0: I don't know. Apart from that movie, I think we're given sort of a quick and washed over a summary of events you know we came we devastated them with our foreign diseases and then took all of their lands our American history curriculum just doesn't spend a lot of time in detail in that part of our history
1: yeah often I think with how American especially American high school courses are taught often not in all they're probably better course there are better schools that might do a better job with this but often we kind of just stop talking about Native American history when we get to the Revolutionary War And a lot of that kind of just like, we don't talk about how they were, they influenced and how they interacted and like what their successes were in their own, in their own histories and stories.
0: Well, and I think this episode is also especially important because most people cannot name a single famous Native American woman besides, you know, Sacagawea and Pocahontas. I know that I personally couldn't and I've had... Two degrees in history, and so that's that's definitely a problem in what we're being mm-hmm. taught and where the focus lies. Yeah. Um, and both Sacagawea and Pocahontas are more famous for their interactions and their stories with white men than they are for their own personal stories and journeys. Yeah, and don't even get started like with the entire Disney movie on oh, Pocahontas. <laughs> <laughs> like, anyway. It's good movie. Good movie. Good movie. Good movie. Not yeah. not factually accurate. Not, no. <laughs> So, today we're going to add a third woman to your list, a remarkable young woman whose hard work and perseverance really helped to change the legal standing of Native Americans under the law and protect the land of her peoples. Suzette LaFleche was born in 1854. Her Omaha name was Inch Thumba, which means bright eyes in English. Her father was an Omaha chief, and their homelands were in the modern-day state of Nebraska. Her parents spoke French, and she grew up speaking Omaha and French.
1: So do we know why she spoke French? Maybe the, the fur traders? I'm not sure. Well,
0: actually, both of her parents were half Native American and half white. Oh, okay. Just coincidentally, both of her grandparents happened to have married Native people, and so actually that means she, I don't know the you know, specifics of her biology, but she definitely was of mixed heritage. To give a bit more context to the time period we're talking about, Abraham Lincoln was president during the Civil War, and he was president and the Civil War took place from 1861 to 1865. So that's roughly the era that we're talking about. I don't know if anyone um, you know, wants to imagine the Daniel Day Lewis, Abraham Lincoln movie, but that's sort of <laughs> the, the time period we're talking yeah, about, what yeah. people were wearing, what things looked like, just to give you a visual representation. Her father was a chieftain, but he was very progressive and liberal, and he personally believed that the Omaha needed to learn to adapt to the ways of the white Americans in order to keep a peaceful relationship with the government and to adapt to the times. And he faced a lot of resistance from his people because of this. I'm
1: sure he did. Yeah, that's, that's very controversial. Yeah.
0: So to give a bit of legal context to the time, the 14th Amendment that granted citizenship to recently freed slaves in 1868 gave citizenship to every person born in America except for Native Americans, Mm -hmm. and it protected all people within its jurisdiction equally under the law except for Native Americans because they weren't legally considered people. So an example of this is, you know, because Native Americans were not recognized as a person under the law, they couldn't sue a white man in court or have him punished for crimes against a Native American under the law. Suzette's father once loaned several thousand dollars to a white man on good faith, and he couldn't reclaim the debt in court when the man refused to refused to pay because oh. he legally wasn't even viewed as a, as a person. After the Civil War, the government started appointing agents to sort of supervise and manage reservations. And so this government-appointed agent comes in and sells off some of the Omaha land, and he abolishes the position of heredi- hereditary chieftain. And without going into the details of it, but this is this was sort of part of President Grant's peace policy, which actually wasn't very peaceful in reality. And I think the U.S. government at the time was very fearful of official tribal organization and the threat that had to the U.S. government's power. So it's abolished informality. But of course, it's still practiced within the Omaha Omaha people amongst themselves. Her father still retained that sense of respect and leadership within the tribe. Mm -hmm. Her father was also replaced as official trader, uh, as was the policy at the time, and a fine and a penalty of six months' imprisonment was actually implemented by the U.S. federal government if any white man traded directly with a Native American. Interesting. All the trade had to be done through this government-appointed white trader who was appointed by the agent, who would give the Omaha peoples only a tiny fraction of the value of whatever they were trading or selling. Mm -hmm. Even though they're being victimized in this way, you, we still see the Omaha people really trying to appease the government and to appease the agent and to fit in. We see them give up hunting to plant crops and build houses on plots of land. Suzette's father, even without speaking much English, knew that the Omaha people needed the title deeds to their land if they were going to keep their land. And he even went all the way to Washington, D.C. from Nebraska to try and obtain these legal title deeds to the lands for his people. And so after years of asking for title deeds to their land, they were given these meaningless certificates. And the Omaha people think that finally they've been granted the title deeds to their land and this is a great victory. And they ask a missionary friend, um, and they show what they think are the title deeds with great pride. And unfortunately, the friend says, these are not the title deeds. These have no legal bearing. These are just meaningless mm. certificates. Mm-hmm. This is, these are just meaningless pieces of paper that the government has kind of tricked you by by giving to you.
1: So a very typical story of the U.S. government. <laughs> yeah. It was, dealings it was, with it was, Native
0: Americans. Yeah, it was very um, underhand. and. Mm-hmm. Um, so despite this deception, Suzette's father did not lose faith in the western white settlers, and he sends all his children to attend the school that was set up by the missionaries, which was a big um, symbol in the tribe at the time and on the reservation because the other Omaha people were a bit more wary of the missionaries and of the school, and the fact that the chieftain is sending his children to that school, that really had a lot of influence. And Suzette shows so much aptitude that the missionaries arrange for her to be sent east to a finishing school called the Elizabeth Institute where Suzette could receive a formal education. And by formal education, you know, this would have involved its finishing school. It would have involved mm-hmm. how to be a lady as well as um, a more academic education as well.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. So she's sent east to attend the school and this is the first time she's left the reservation and she's left home and the first time she rides a train. And when she arrives east i mean you can only imagine how scary and and strange of an experience this must have been for her if she grew up on an omaha reservation and all of a sudden she's thrown into the middle of east coast life and it was a completely different world so when she arrives she's given a full new wardrobe made by volunteers obviously we can only imagine how different those clothes would have been to what she was used to wearing Mm -hmm. and when she's there she has to spend several years out east without returning home because it was just too far and expensive So she's out there for several years, and on breaks she's staying in the homes of her wealthy friends that she's at school with. You know, this is a school that attracts sort of New England's finest young ladies. So we really get a sense that she's learning how to assimilate into this other world, and she's grappling with what it means to be this half-native, half white woman who grew up on a Omaha reservation, but is now in finishing school on the East Coast Mm -hmm. and and kind of merging these two worlds. So when she finally returns home, it's obviously a very difficult adjustment back to her Omaha life. And she wants to sort of share what she's learned, but there are no teaching positions available near any of the Omaha villages. She then discovers that there's actually specific legislation provided for a Native American teacher to be given preference over a white teacher on reservations. So she writes to Washington, citing this legislation and asking for permission to replace any of the white teachers at the nearby reservation schools. She doesn't hear back for a really long time, but eventually Washington gets back to her with permission to start a new school. And they give her permission to use this dilapidated old shack as a school, and it's so far away from the Omaha villages that she actually has to move into a shed that's attached to it. And it's so run down that her whole tribe has to come help her to restore the building, make it safe to be inhabited. They build desks for the students and some local missionaries donate some supplies. So it's a very rudimentary school, but it's all her own and it's all for Omaha children. She also started a Sunday school to continue, you know, the very slow conversion of the tribe to Christianity because she grew up going to this missionary school and missionaries were a really big part of the tribal life as well. But it is a very slow um, transition.
1: Yeah, and probably very controversial as well. Yeah, for Mm -hmm. good
0: reason. Omaha people did not trust many of the white people they were coming Mm -hmm. to contact with. Suzette could also play the organ, though, which really helped draw Omaha people into the church and into the school because the instrument and the music it produced was so foreign to them that it was really intriguing. And she would play it and and people would kind of drift into the school from Mm -hmm. the nearby festivities to check out what was going on and keep attending just because it was exciting and new. beautiful, (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. and and beautiful and very Mm -hmm. different. You know, the buffalo was a center of tribal life for the Omaha. It not only provided food and supplies and clothing, but it also had a lot of spiritual significance to them. So when the buffalo neared extinction, it did not go extinct, but it did come close by the end of the 19th century because it was overhunted. The lack of available food and supplies the animal provided, coupled with the new restriction on trading with Native Americans, resulted in the tribe falling into deep poverty and, and a bit of despair because their entire way of life is being sort of taken away from them. They're really not allowed to trade directly with white settlers anymore, and the buffalo is going is is becoming extremely endangered. But despite drought and several grasshopper and locust invasions, the Omaha people continue to try and be white people's version of, quote, civilized by farming and building wooden frame houses. You know, they really show an effort to appease the government and try and fit in and protect what they have and and avoid this continuing persecution and discrimination by trying to assimilate. But we see policymakers continue to mock them and to describe their really valiant efforts as, you know, quote, ridiculous. And of course, this is an era, the era we're talking about is, is you know, when politicians and people in power are still publicly referring to Native Americans as, as savages and, and the language is really reprehensible and there's absolutely no understanding there and no connection between these two cultures. And they're really, really viewed as other, no matter sort of what efforts the Omaha and their neighbors, you know, try and make.
1: Yeah, and other tribes, too. I mean, if you look about 50 years earlier, you have the Cherokee. Like, they have a very well-defined civilization. And they try to make claims that they should have their own. They, they do have those legal rights to be in their native lands. But they are but they are kicked out by Andrew Jackson in the Trail of Tears. So, no, like, there is there is no happy, there's no way to appease or have happy medium at all.
0: Yeah, that's exactly what happened here as well. Suzette's uncle was leader of the nearby Ponca tribe, and actually officials came and told the Ponca that they uh, had to move to an Oklahoma government designated reservation because their lands had been given to the Sioux, who were actually historic enemies of the Ponca and the Omaha, And, and this was in the Fort Laramie Treaty of 1868. And this Fort Laramie Treaty totally ignored the previous treaties of 1858 and 1865, which had assured the Ponca of their right to live on their own land. As long as the grass shall grow and the water shall flow, was the phrase used. So the Ponca leaders are told that the chiefs can go out to Oklahoma and inspect the land that was set aside for them on the Oklahoma reservation. And that if they don't like it, they will be taken to the president. So the Ponca leaders agree to go already thinking that they're going to reject the land, but that they'll be taken to the president and they'll finally be able to officially and directly ask for the title deeds to their own land. And they kind of go with this assumption of, oh, the president of the United States of America must be a reasonable and and kind person. And if we Mm. explain our story directly and we're taken to the president, we'll be able to get our title deeds. So they go willingly. And they arrive to Oklahoma to find a diseased, ridden swamp that couldn't be farmed. And the Ponca leaders are told that if the Ponca refused to relocate, they would be made to by Mm force. And then the leaders are just left there in a far and foreign land, penniless, weeks from home with absolutely no idea where they were and no ability to speak the language. So they travel home by foot, and even after they made the very strenuous journey, you know, we're talking about through blizzards, on the open plains, even after all of the struggle, they truly believe that the agent who had treated them this way did not speak for the president or the U.S. government. They still believe that if the president and if white people heard their tragic story, that they would be outraged and that they would give them the title deeds to their lands. So shortly after the Ponca chiefs make it home... They're arrested and thrown in jail for days without food and water because they left the reservation in Oklahoma and walked all the way home. And then the Ponca homes are raided and they're all robbed of the possessions that they had worked really hard to legally buy. These aren't even just things they, you know, made themselves or or had had traded. These are possessions that they had worked to earn American money to legally buy from these government agent appointed mm-hmm. white traders. So it's just absolutely deplorable and absolutely, would be yeah. completely illegal, except for they're not even considered persons under the law. So there's mm-hmm. nothing to protect them. Then the entire Ponca tribe is marched to the Oklahoma reservation that the leaders had just escaped from, and most of them die on the journey. Once they arrive there and on the journey there, some of the Ponca escape, and they walk on foot again all the way to their Omaha relatives in Nebraska. They walk on foot for 10 weeks, only to be arrested upon their arrival. And this is for the second time that they've escaped and come back, Mm -hmm. and they're arrested when they get back to Nebraska. Some nearby lawyers and journalists hear of this tragic story and they take the Ponca's case to court and actually they're successful and they win the Ponca the right to be viewed as a person under the law, but they are not viewed as citizens under the law. And so this is the complex result of meaning, you know, the the Ponca are viewed as people, but they're not viewed as Americans. And so they're technically foreigners in the United States. their own land. Which is very ironic because they are the Native Americans. But so now they're legally viewed as foreigners, on their own land. And because Native American reservations were these government-controlled lands, I mean, I I don't know the specifics about the legality behind it, but I think there were complicated rules, who could enter and who could not, Mm -hmm. and and what that meant. So the result of this decision is, yes, they can be viewed as people under the law, but they actually legally can no longer enter any Native American reservation. So that was a victory for the Ponca, but Keep in mind, this is only a very small percentage of Ponca people who had escaped back to Nebraska and who were part of this movement that took the case to court. The rest of the Ponca tribe is still on the Oklahoma reservation. So they're still living in these swamp diseased conditions. All of their cattle and horses have either been stolen by the white agents or they've died. They have no food. They don't have any soil that can be farmed. And their tents were made to be really far apart because the agents and the government officials were worried about revolt and uprising and conspiracy. And I say the word tents because, I mean, these are makeshift dwellings that they constructed out of the bare minimum supplies that they had on their backs. So these dwellings are so far apart that actually families didn't know when one another grew ill and they can't take care of each other. So little children are left alone to care for their dying parents and bury their dead relatives. And when people arrive, they see, you know, little babies living by themselves with basically their, their relatives dead all around them. Oh, it was heartbreaking. really horrific. And to make things worse, the chiefs of the Ponca are blamed for the discontent. And so the chiefs are arrested and accused of, you know, not being appropriate leaders as if it's their fault. We also see whiskey peddlers emerge at this time and purposely start targeting the Ponca and purposely getting them addicted to alcohol despite a really long-standing tradition of them being sober people. So all these terrible things are happening to the Ponca tribe, um, but the Omaha tribe is also
1: at risk, right?
0: Yeah, well, actually they soon learned that Congress has actually introduced a bill to move the Omaha tribe as well to the reservation, the same reservation. So Suzette and her brother Francis, with the help and funding of this group that called themselves the Omaha Committee that was comprised of, you know, their white friends, journalists, missionaries, they go on this lecture tour, hoping to gain public support and to stop Congress, basically. Mm -hmm. And even though Suzette her entire life used her white French name, Suzette LaFleche, immediately upon embarking on this press tour... The press only refer to her by her native name, Bright Eyes, and the public only refers to her as Bright Eyes, even though she's gone by Suzette her whole life. Yeah. So Suzette embarks on this lecture tour, and she speaks at receptions with really notable and influential people, such as Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, Wendell Phillips, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Louisa May Alcott. And Suzette didn't have a lot of experience public speaking, and she actually really hated it. But she did it because she knew she was her people's last hope and everything kind of rested on her. And we see Suzette very brilliantly and purposefully use her East Coast education to make herself a bit more relatable to the politicians that she's trying to influence and the people she's trying to influence. And so she really strategically and successfully helps to dispel some of these Uh, negative assumptions that people have about Native Americans and really increase public awareness and really gain a lot of supporters. So after two really strenuous and exhausting years of this lecture tour and raising public support and awareness, they're actually successful and Congress passes a bill to return the Ponca to their own lands in Nebraska and to actually also reimburse them for their stolen goods. And the success continues. In 1882, Congress passes the Omaha Bill, which also prevents the Omaha from being moved and finally gives the Omaha legal possession of their lands. They are finally granted these title deeds that her father started campaigning for, you know, decades earlier. So, in a lot of ways, I mean, this is a true success story. We see a young woman who is Native American, who, despite all the politics of Washington at the time is, is successful in influencing Congress and really instrumental in getting legislation passed that really saved her own people at the time and not only her own people but the Ponca people as well. So I thought this was a really remarkable and inspirational story about you know the power of one person and one young woman in particular. Suzette died in 1903 at 49 years old, and she was buried in her allotment of the land that was given to her and her tribe as a result of a lifetime of work for her people. Her headstone reads, she did all that she could to make the world happier and better. I thought this was a really beautiful and inspirational story and definitely part of American history that I had not heard before, and I hope you guys found it inspirational as well.
1: Well, thanks so much for listening, and we hope you tune in next time.
0: Wonder Woman is edited by Dominique Roberts with original music by Matthew Gregory.